The views, information, or opinions expressed during the following podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the individuals involved. Hello, and welcome to Pseudo-Intellectuals, the podcast where we discuss all things relating to politics, philosophy, and law. I am Abraham Litwin Logan, and today we will be discussing healthcare. We're going to be t- having a very broad discussion, first starting about whether healthcare is a right or privilege, then we're going to discuss various models of healthcare in different um, countries, and sort of see if we can come to a general understanding as to perhaps whether or not it's a right or privilege, and perhaps what is the best system. So here with me to discuss is Harish. How's it going? It's going good. Also here with us is Malik. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for asking. So let's get right to it. Malik, is healthcare a right or a privilege? Well, uh, I think that health is arguably a right and not a privilege. The World Health Organization's constitution affirms that the enjoyment of the highest attainable standard of health is a fundamental human right. And more than half of the world's countries have included the right to health, public health, or medical care in their national constitutions, among them uh, the great nation of Brazil. So uh, I, I do think that there's an argument to be made that health is, is, is a right and not a privilege because it involves uh, the idea of human dignity. And if humans are suffering, they ought to have a way to do something about it. And for, for this, healthcare is important. What do you guys think? Well, just on that, so would you also believe that whenever humans suffer, if we can associate some way to stem that suffering, that there should be some sort of right um, in response to that or just in terms of healthcare? Well, I believe that it's in particularly important in relation to healthcare because universal healthcare is not something that is too hard to achieve because many countries have systems that provide universal healthcare. So seeing as it, it is a possibility, a realistic possibility, I believe that in relation to health, a, pro- providing universal healthcare should be a right and not necessarily a privilege. So um, I think playing off of what Malik said, this is an extension of this idea of roles appeal to this idea of fair equality of opportunity. So the prominent line of argument goes that um, universal healthcare or some form of healthcare access is important because it equalizes opportunity that otherwise people wouldn't have. So I think based on that premise, we can say that there's value in holding it as a right, but I'm not sure I'd go so far as to say it's an absolute or even a very strong form of right because there's, I mean, in a government or in a state, you have to have counterbalancing. So um, implementation of healthcare as opposed to other outcomes that the government has to prioritize the economic development or um, social well-being, that sort of thing. So I, I don't think, I, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's an important, like it's an, it's an unqualified right, but I think it's a qualified right. So there are circumstances in which you can limit that access in favor of other general principles of public policy. I see your point, uh, but could you give some examples of principles that you would hold to to greater esteem than, uh, than health care? So I guess it really depends, right? Um, let's say it's an economic downturn and you'd have to divert resources away from healthcare, then I think healthcare doesn't become as important to right as economic development because that's what your economy is going to be based on. That's what everyone's well-being is going to be based on. So it's more, it's not cut, like completely compromising that right, but rather it's about recognizing that the right isn't as important as other uh, public policy concerns. But definitionally, isn't that slightly paradoxical in the sense that isn't a right something that is, by its very nature, unqualified? Or do we take the more expansive view of what, you know, rights are? I'd say I take a more expansive view on just what I think rights are, which is that no right is unqualified. Rather, they're instrumental 
in the sense that they're useful insofar as they help achieve some sort of public outcome. So public utility in some form. So even something like freedom of speech, for example, I don't think should be an unqualified privilege, but rather a qualified one where it can be curtailed in limited circumstances. So are rights good in and of itself or are rights only good due to the public utility that they provide? So I, I lean towards the latter. So I think pub- rights are useful because they are a good way of ensuring good public outcomes, but not because rights are like intrinsically valuable. So if that's the case, and um, let's take freedom of speech, for example, if the government thinks that, you know, freedom of speech is problematic since, um, I don't know, maybe in an economic downturn, it results in people buying less things. I don't know if that's true, but let's assume it is true. Then consequently, that would mean um, that if we take the government's explanation, then we should not value freedom of speech, right? not as much as the countervailing concern. Yeah. But ordinarily, of course, in reality, freedom of speech is valuable in and of itself. Yeah. So I think like those concerns are limited and largely limited or hypothetical. So. I'd just like to touch a little bit upon uh, the idea of egalitarianism and that, for example, take a diabetic person and a non-diabetic person. The diabetic person has greater medical expenses due to their, uh, well, their diabetes. And in comparison, the non-diabetic person does not have the same uh, expenses. So were we to implement universal health care, they would both have uh, the same opportunities because the cost would be split between both of them. And so the diabetic person would not be at a disadvantage. And so they'd be able to enjoy the, the, the same opportunities as a non-diabetic person. And I, I believe that there's an argument to be made that this is positive because simply because a person is, is born with a, with a certain... Um, well, with a certain disease, they shouldn't be at a handicap in comparison to other people. Nonetheless, I do recognize that perhaps uh, there's also an argument to be made that there's a certain unfairness in making the person that is not affected by uh, diabetes pay for the medical bills of another. Uh, Abraham, you want to jump in? Yeah, I think intuitively that seems correct, but I think it becomes a bit problematic on deeper analysis in the sense that if the reason that healthcare is a right is to in effect, uh, create more equal opportunity, if my understanding is correct of your example, then similarly, shouldn't we have rights associated with people being born with, you know, less money, uh, less opportunity in different senses? So I think it um, might cause, uh, you know, a lot of things uh, becoming warranted and of, of becoming rights, and I think that could be slightly problematic. No, I do agree. Uh, this personally is not my point of view, but it is uh, a justification that is provided for the idea of why uh, healthcare should be universal. Right. And um, playing off of what Abraham alluded to, which is the concern that you'd have a lot more rights. The thing is, this is why I think um, healthcare and other public policy issues largely shouldn't be, u- shouldn't be used as unqualified rights, but rather qualified rights. Because that, that helps you weigh up potential conflicting policy objectives and just helps you understand the issue a bit um, in a more holistic perspective because governments have competing policy objectives to achieve. Yeah, so I guess I'll, I'll give my sort of opinion on it. Um, well, personally, I don't. I, my opinion isn't incredibly entrenched, so my mind could be changed, but I'd say roughly um, three reasons why I don't think healthcare is a human right. Firstly, because I haven't heard a compelling enough justification for it becoming a right. And I think 
I'm, I'm personally of the belief that for something to be a right, there must be a really, you know, strong justification for it. Um, secondly, because healthcare itself is a bit difficult to define. So are we talking about, you know, um, some countries that limit the amount of uh, times you can visit a doctor, I guess, and or you can go to the doctor as much as possible? Are these both equally um, guaranteeing the right of healthcare? Does this include stuff like cosmetic surgery? Is that part of healthcare? Some would argue yes, some would argue no. So I think for something to be a right, it has to have a pretty you know clear definition. And then thirdly, um, I think fundamentally rights imply duties on other people. So um, in terms of healthcare, what specific duty are we implying on what specific person? I don't think there's an answer to that. Like, do we imply a duty on you know medical professionals? Are we implying a duty on you know the state to pay these medical professionals? I think that's a little unclear. So for me personally, that's my three sort of reservations with uh, making it a right. Right, and um, I think Abraham has alluded to a lot of the concerns that are associated with calling it a right, but then that comes down to our understanding of a right. And I think mm-hmm. Abraham's conception is one where rights are largely unqualified and limited in very limited circumstances. But uh, I mean, the, the position I'm taking is that these are qualified rights. So they're useful insofar as they help achieve a public policy objective, but they're not useful beyond that. So if you can curtail it in order to advance some other policy objective in the advancement of some other qualified right, then that seems completely fair to me. I think I lean more towards Harris's understanding of uh, healthcare as a right, because I do believe that there has to be some minimum standard of provision by part of, of a state. If it's not burdensome on the state to provide some sort of, uh, of medical uh, aid to its citizens, then I believe that there is an argument to be made that that would be useful because it is in the interest of the citizens. And I do believe that government should have uh, the interest of citizens as its priority. And, and so I tend to lean uh, towards Harris's interpretation of, uh, of this. Right. And um, I think it also aligns with a lot of what uh, Western welfare states do. So that's why you see a lot of interventionism, not just in healthcare, but in other parts of the economy as well, because these things are seen as public utilities, or these things are seen as um, qualified rights. And so that's why there's a lot of spending in that area. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, as our listeners can obviously um, see, there seems to be this divergence of our, you know, very personal moral philosophies whereby, um, you know, Harish and Malik are proffering this more, I guess, uh, I think, consequentialist view of, of rights and a largely uh, utilitarian grounded view of rights. And uh, personally, I don't, I don't think we can really, you know, determine if rights are valid purely on, you know, such a basis. So I, I think that's a very, you know, fundamental divergence between us, but I, I don't think we want to get too caught up on this. And maybe Malik just want to say something final on it. Well, uh, I I wanted to actually move on the discussion towards sure. more general, uh, well, healthcare in general and the advantages of providing universal healthcare. Uh, one of the advantages I think is that everyone would have access to this important public service because if uh, healthcare is left to the free market, there would be some who would not be able to uh, ob- obtain healthcare insurance and thus would be left without uh, proper healthcare. And this is problematic in crisis situations especially. Take the, the, the current uh, situation with the coronavirus. The reason that the United States does not have a more accurate figure of the number of cases of coronavirus in the country is due to its healthcare system. Since it's very expensive for its citizens to 
uh, go to hospitals. They, they, they rather stay at, ho at home or seek other forms of uh, medical services other than, uh, than proper healthcare. And consequently, the government is not able to have accurate figures and statistics in relation to, to this important uh, well crisis. And I believe that this is problematic. There's also studies that show that uh, preventive care reduces the need for expensive emergency services and uh, consequently providing a universal health care would mean that more people would go to these preventive care uh, and this would in turn reduce the, the necessity that these people have to go to emergency room uh, services and this in turn leads to uh, a lower risk of death because when healthcare is not universal, when healthcare is not easily accessible, a person will likely leave it to the last moment to, uh, to go to hospitals because they know that it's gonna be a burden upon them uh, to go to the hospitals and pay these exorbitant fees. I think uh, that that pretty much outlines some of the, of, the, of the benefits of providing universal healthcare, though I do see that there's some disadvantages, but first I'd like to hear your thoughts in regards to these arguments. Um, so maybe first we can talk about the coronavirus and then get into the you know second statistic you're talking about. Um, so on the coronavirus, I think it is a very interesting argument, sort of that um, without universal health care, some you know um, grounded public health care policy, it's much more difficult to deal with, um, I guess, a pandemic such as coronavirus. And I think, yeah, maybe that has some substance to it. But at least from my understanding in the U.S., a large problem um, with the reason that um, they haven't had such accurate numbers on how many people have the coronavirus is not only because of people aren't, um, you know, going to see the doctor. It's because of a huge lack of testing um, kits or whatever it is for the coronavirus. Not really sure. But so I'm not sure if that like universal health care itself would would solve that. But let's just let's ignore the testing um, kit thing if if we could say that um, there's some other way to improve testing and get accurate numbers in the US as to how many people have coronavirus this most certainly could be done without you know introducing you know universal health care there's other ways it could be done so I, I don't think you know um, responding to pandemic in itself is um, sufficient justification for overhauling um, a country's, you know, medical system like that. As in, I'm inclined to agree simply because I think the testing kits are one of the biggest issues that the U.S. faces and other countries face around the world. So we, we can't really evaluate based off of that. And so I think we'd have to see what happens after the U.S. procures testing kits uh, on a nationwide basis and then determine if the efficacy of the U.S. is worse than some other countries. I'm not sure if we have numbers on this, but um, obviously coronavirus, um, there are cases in countries with universal health care. And I know in, in some uh, examples, such as Singapore, it seems to be that they're doing a pretty good job. But in other countries that also have public health care, such as Italy, it seems to not be going so well for them. So it, it may be a problem that's more um, uh, external than simply public health care. Right. And one of the things that Singapore has as an advantage is the fact that it's a small country with a really um, robust mm -hmm. healthcare system and it has a really robust executive government. So it's able to easily track individuals. So that's why our contact tracing mechanisms have been far more effective than other countries around the world, which is why we see a discrepancy. So even though Singapore was one of the first ones hit with the coronavirus crisis, 
it still has a smaller number of cases than the UK, for example. I would like to mention, though, that when China started to implement uh, policies to improve its, its healthcare on, in a short-term basis to deal with the coronavirus, uh, it, w- it was able to deal with it more effectively. I know that uh, it's a conjunction of, of measures. Uh, it wasn't only the provision of healthcare. It was also, well, the shutting down of, of cities, of industries, and uh, other such measures that helped contain the coronavirus. But I do think that healthcare did play a role in that. And perhaps you guys are not valuing it as much as uh, it arguably should be valued. Because I do, I do believe that if, if the United States had a better healthcare system, at least to an extent, they would have better, not only better numbers, but also a more effective strategy to combat uh, the virus in itself. Of course, without testing kits, you, you, it would, they would be unable to determine the extent of the cases, but uh, that is my perspective. Right, and um, I think it's clear that everyone, I mean, everyone knows that the U.S. is the country that spends the most per capita on um, health care. They spent 7,910 on healthcare per capita in 2010. Britain spent 3,253 with the NHS. Mm-hmm. France spent 3,835. And Canada, 4,285. So obviously the US is far and above the most expensive country. So a more robust healthcare system, a universal healthcare system, I think it's quite hard to disagree that it would lead to cheaper costs. But I think the matter is... a. Uh, is, is, is more so about whether we would want to implement something like that in light of um, free market principles. So I think that's the, that's the real tension there. Abraham seems to disagree, though. I'm not, I'm not sure if I agree with the premise. Like, maybe it would lead to lower costs. Granted, I haven't looked on, at a lot of data on this, but intuitively, I feel like, you know, embracing a more free market approach would naturally lead to lower costs. Harris seems like he has a few statistics ready so, to refute um, me. Singapore tried to implement that early on. So they tried to get hospitals to compete with each other mm-hmm. to see who would give the best healthcare. So it was a free market model in a, in a limited space. Mm-hmm. And what happened was uh, healthcare prices actually rose because hospitals started investing in more expensive and more exclusive treatment. So the incentives for hospitals are not to reduce costs to to reach out to a wider number of people, but rather incentives are to reach to the biggest, like the biggest paying market and get them to come in. And that's what we see happens. And that's what still happens in Singapore now. So we have a robust public healthcare system, but we also have a very good private healthcare system. And medical tourism is actually one of our biggest um, imports, uh, exports rather. So we make a lot of money off of that because our healthcare system is widely regarded as really good. People come in from the region, especially rich individuals like Indonesians, uh, Thai people, so on and so forth. So that's 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 our base, and I think that shows you the limits of a free free market model. I just like to inquire as to your views in regards to my second point in regards to how preventive care increases when universal care uh, universal healthcare is provided, and consequently it reduces the number of expensive emergency room usages, which also reduces the. Uh, well, the probability that individuals that are in these em- emergency rooms uh, will, 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 will die. Uh, and hence, this is perhaps a pretty strong argument for why universal healthcare should be uh, implemented. What do you guys think? So I, I, I can't think intuitively of a counter argument. All I can say is that there are, count- there are models that work without having a universal healthcare model, like Singapore's model. Singapore's model is one with a high co-payment rate. So in fact, um, we only like the government only pays for a quarter of overall health expenses, and three quarters is pocketed by individuals, because we rely on a really strong um, 
saving scheme, compulsory saving scheme and a and a compulsory investment scheme into insurance. So this forces people to pay out of pocket, especially those who are able. And um, because of that, imposition on government is quite low and we're able to then allocate resources to people who really need it. So the least well-off in society. So I, I'd say my, own, my, my biggest counter-argument against that is that there are competing models that involve a high rate of co-payment that can achieve the same outcomes and perhaps better outcomes. And on co-payment, I came across this you know, really interesting study um, it, by RAND and called the RAND Health Insurance Experiment. And just how large the study was, it was really shocking to me. So I encourage our listeners to check it out. It's pretty interesting. But uh, it, they also um, discussed this idea of, you know, co-payments, co-insurance. So cost sharing is the way they phrased it. And what they found is that cost sharing reduced spending for healthcare services. Um, the reason being that participants with um, cost sharing would make fewer medical visits and were admitted to hospitals less frequently. And some people may initially be concerned by hearing that, that you know people aren't going to the doctor or the hospital as much. Um, but the what's really important is that the cost sharing did not really affect the participants' health, which is a little bit surprising. The only participants' health who were affected were those who were the very sickest and the very poorest. So it was, uh, only at the very extremes. But as a you know, um, on average, health wasn't affected. So I think that sort of speaks to the idea of um, co-payments, um, specifically higher co-payments, being uh, largely successful. That is a pretty interesting study. I just now like to tackle a bit of the disadvantages of perhaps providing universal uh, healthcare system. Of course, in many countries we have an aging population, and uh, consequently, w- when the population ages, it, there is a greater demand for healthcare because these aging individuals require greater greater healthcare. Uh, however. Inversely, uh, economic growth tends to decrease with uh, uh, an aging population, which means that a government has to spend a greater percentage of their GDP uh, on uh, healthcare, and uh, thus it seems problematic to uh, provide universal healthcare for an aging population uh, because the government will have to spend more on healthcare and won't have uh, as much capital to invest elsewhere. What do you guys think about uh, this, this this position, this argument? Right. I I think Malik's kind of hit the nail on its head. So. It's clear that with changing population demographics, your workforce participation rate is going to be lower because the number of people that are involved in the workforce are going to be lower. So I think it's, it's, a, it's a twofold problem, right? One is um, b- lower birth rates leading to a smaller supporting populace that's able to pay taxes to support healthcare systems, but a growing, burgeoning um, boomer population from, uh, from the post-World uh, War II era. So obviously this is going to put a huge strain on government resources. So I don't think a fully public healthcare system is a good idea because it's going to lead to lots of debt issues in the future and we don't know what the long-term ramifications of this are. I think the question as uh, with regards to an aging population is a much more fundamental question uh, rather than just pertaining to you know universal healthcare. And this is something I'm personally... Um, very concerned about because, you know, as Harish alluded to, with lower workforce participation, it's in reality going to be impossible to um, fund these expansive social programs specifically in Europe. And I think we should discuss this on another podcast maybe because I think this is specifically birth rates in in Europe and I guess across the world 
um, with the exception of um, Africa and, and some parts of Asia, are really going to have huge effects on Europe and the rest of the world in the future. So I, I think it is really concerning for those who favor an expansive healthcare system and expansive social programs in general to somehow, because it's not possible to find ways to pay for this stuff when you forecast 30 years from now or 50 years from the now, from, from now even. I just you know, don't really think it's possible. And I think given that, I think we are going to need to find more sustainable solutions. But what those solutions are, maybe it has something to do with the free market, not 100% sure. If we want to talk about the free market a little bit, we can move towards that. So I think Singapore offers a pretty good interventionist model while like having sort of a free market model in the sense that people pay for what they use and spend on. So in Singapore, what happens is normally for primary healthcare, you have a co-payment sum. And the co-payment sum can be determined based off of whether you go to a private clinic or whether you go to a polyclinic, which is a government-run clinic. So costs are different. Medical, all medical expenses are subsidized, but they're not fully subsidized. So I'd say a 50% subsidy and then it increases based on your income bracket. So I think this is a good model because it allows you to divert resources quite easily to people who are least well off while not subsidizing people who are well enough to pay for their own medical bills and who would be more, more than happy to go to a private medical clinic where they can pay far more money and get treatment immediately. So it's a good, it's a good model. And then secondary healthcare is very much subsidized as well. So if you have treatments they need to go in for, depending on your ward. Um, so there's three different types of wards. There's uh, A wards, B wards, and C wards. C wards are the most common and the least full featured. But C wards, you, you get up to 80% subsidies on your medical and your medical payments, which is quite a sizable number. And if you're someone who's not really well off, this, this can be a significant amount of help given to you. And um, you might even get help from a government-run fund called Medifund, which pays out for low-income individuals. If you're, if you're fairly middle-class, you'll be getting into a B ward, which subsidizes a bit less, but you still get fairly well-subsidized, and you pay out-of-pocket. For the most well-off, you can take a class A ward, and um, I guess it's the full feature, so it's single-suite, um, air-conditioned, all the works. And sound like a salesman, Harish. As in, it is, it is, because I've seen all of that. And I mean, uh, the results speak for themselves, right? Singapore has some of the highest life expectancy rates in the world, best, lowest infant mortality rates. And um, I mean, being experiencing the healthcare system there is like, I've faced zero problems so far, and I don't think people have faced many problems so far. So I don't think. I think it's a very, it's generally a very sustainable model because it requires a lot of co-payment and it's um, a very effective model because the results speak for themselves. Do we, ha- I, don't, I don't know if we do, but do we have some sort of data on the cost of the medical um, program in Singapore and if the cost is something that's um, like can be paid off realistically given, you know, the birth rate stuff we sort of alluded to earlier? I don't know if we have that. Uh, not at the moment, but... What I can say is that because of the fact that payment on the part of individuals is three quarters of the actual payment that you pay for healthcare, government intervention is little. Mm-hmm. Government rather forces you to save and spend for it yourself as opposed to intervening at the point of expenditure. So by intervening earlier, you you don't really impose that much on government. So we have one of the lowest um, like healthcare spending rates as a percentage of budget. But we, we do have one of the best outcomes out there. So, 
perhaps it'd be interesting to explore the Brazilian model, which is uh, arguably problematic, but uh, in its conception, it is a pretty uh, interesting uh, model because we have both private and public healthcare. We have the Sistema Unico de Saúde, which is uh, the, the public healthcare, which is available to all. The problems with it is that it's very bureaucratic and there's long waits for, for the services that it offers. But individuals have also the option to uh, utilize private uh, healthcare. And that's what the uh, Brazilians that can afford private healthcare do. Uh, approximately 30% of the population utilizes private healthcare in Brazil, while uh, the remaining 70% utilize public healthcare. And perhaps this is interesting because it offers both a solution for those who are unable to afford uh, private healthcare, but also allows those that are able to afford it to have better services. What do you guys feel about uh, this uh, this model? I think 30% of a population using private you know, health insurance just seems like such a huge number for me when the system is supposed to be public health care. I, I wonder why that is. Do you think it's relating to the quality of care or? I don't think it's relating to the quality itself, though that probably does have a factor to play. It's more of the delays. If you were waiting for a service, you can wait for a quite a significant uh, amount of time, especially if you're dealing with uh, a terminal disease that might not be advisable because, well, you you, you will die. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's why I think that a large portion of the population might opt for private healthcare, at least those who, who can afford it. Yeah, so on the topic of wait times, I think I can bring in Canada for a comparison. So. This is anecdotal, uh, it's my own personal experience, so don't take this to be true across the board, but I had a wrist injury and I was told by a doctor that I need to get an MRI as soon as possible. So um, the doctor referred me to a, the local hospital and I had to wait eight months for an MRI for my wrist. So, um, at least personally, it seemed, it seemed pretty bad, the system in Canada and how it affected me. So I'm not sure I'm such a, such a big fan of the program. Rather, I think perhaps I keep saying it a free, okay, I'll let Malik Jenkinson. Well, I just wanted first. to ask you, but do you think that those who are unable to afford private healthcare should still have an option, even if it's an option that is of a lesser quality or uh, gives them a service that, well, is delayed? Um. I'm not sure, to be honest. And l let me elaborate on that. So in my ideal system, uh, a free market healthcare economy would drive down prices enough whereby anybody who is employed would uh, receive healthcare um, from their employer. And that leaves either people who are, I suppose, retired and theoretically would be able to afford um, you know, health insurance, because they should be, you know, taking money uh, from when they're working and putting it towards that. And that leaves people who are unemployed for various reasons. And for those people, well, might be a little a little tough. But, but let me elaborate on that, because I guess for listeners thinks I'm like, some like heartless person. <laughs> Maybe I am, but uh, don't think so. Anyways, I think this comes down more to our initial disagreement about right or privilege, because if something is not a right, then it's difficult for, if I think something isn't a right, it's difficult for me to say, oh, it's not a right, but I think everyone should have it. That seems, you know, fundamentally flawed a little bit. And because I haven't heard enough 
uh, a compelling enough justification for it being a right, it sort of forces me to say what I just said. But obviously that's not ideal for me. I don't want that to happen. I would love for everybody to have healthcare, and I think that would be ideal. But that being said, we have to look at things realistically, and I think in a realistic system, which results in the net best uh, outcome, I think the reality is that not everybody would have healthcare. I also have a question to pose to both of you. How do you feel about the idea of healthy people paying for other people's medical care? So this uh, goes back to my idea of uh, the, or, well, my example of the diabetic and the non-diabetic person and how the non-diabetic person under, uh, well, under some systems of universal healthcare would have to pay for the diabetic person's treatment. Because in the United States, the sickest 5% of the population create 50% of total healthcare costs while the healthiest 50% only create 3% of, uh, of the cost. Do you find this manifestly unfair? Great statistic, Malik. And I think that, you know, um, sort of assists with what I was saying earlier. I think it is sort of crazy that, I mean, 50% of the total healthcare cost is down to 5% of the population, meaning that theoretically 95% of people are paying for such a small proportion of the population. Like, to me, that seems... Um, unfair. That seems wrong to me. So I think maybe with a free market model, it would be more um, individual based. So it would be um, in some ways every family for themselves. And I think I should maybe provide some justification for this free market idea I keep talking about. So I'd say three reasons that it may be a good idea. Okay. So um, first reason is that like take the U.S. for example, it's not a perfect free market, not at all. I think the healthcare system in the U.S. is terrible. But even like even though that's true, for many of like niche diseases and niche problems, the U.S. is the best place to go. Like in Canada, even for something like my, my MRI, my own you know doctor who I guess is paid by the government told me that I should probably just go to the U.S because it takes so long and I, I'll get a, you know, at the very least an equal MRI and I, I won't have to wait, you know, eight months. But if I did that, I would have to pay more, obviously, because I don't have American health insurance. So that's the first reason. It seems that the limited free market in the U.S. does result in, you know, these really good treatments, although the treatments are available to only some. Second reason um, is that it seems to me that in unregulated, lesser regulated sectors in the U.S. healthcare industry, there has been cost reduction and, and um, better quality. So um, two examples of this. First, um, LASIK surgery, and second, cosmetic surgery. So both of these you know, sectors of the uh, healthcare economy have been regulated to a much lesser extent than you know, traditional conceptions of what healthcare is. And the result is that when LASIK surgery initially was a thing, it was in incredibly unaffordable. It was seen as this incredibly niche thing. And now, you know, it, almost anybody can afford LASIK and it, it ha its um, risk has been reduced over time. Then also, um, secondly, with cosmetic surgery, some would argue this isn't, you know, really pertaining to healthcare, um, but I, 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 I still think it's an applicable example in that cosmetic surgery has, you know, traditionally been conceived as this, you know, thing for the Hollywood elite and that sort of thing. But nowadays, because of, I think, competition, um, it's something that's affordable to a lot of people and not just for, you know, these, 
you know, lift injections or whatever it is. But, you know, if you're in like a, you know, an accident and you need like some, you know, uh, cosmetic surgery for facial reconstruction, it's something that many people can afford when this wasn't the case previously. Right. Uh, I'm going to move back to your first point, which is about how it, um, it leads to better health outcomes in terms of research and development. So there's a good argument to be made that the reason why pharmaceutical companies in the U.S. are able to make profits is because of the fact that they're able to charge high drug prices. Mm -hmm. And that is what allows the rest of the world to benefit from good pharmaceutical research, essentially. Because if you have every single pharmaceutical company out there um, having to play with, like the NHS, with low drug prices, of Singapore's interventionist system where things are highly subsidized, I'm not sure we'll be able to get the, the quality of research that is out there. So I'd say that's a compelling argument to having a free market economy in the U.S. because it helps fund the rest of the world's research and development. Well, I think this, you know, is really problematic that, at least from my perspective, the U.S. spends all this money developing these great drugs, this great research, and then the rest of the world, you know, either copies the drugs or, you know, just steals them and, you know, copies them that way because this does happen and this reduces costs for, you know, other countries, other pharmaceutical industries while keeping um, the costs in the U.S. very high. So I think that is concerning and I think the U.S. needs to do something about that. I don't know what that exactly would be, but I, th I, I think that could even be exterior to the healthcare um, as a public or private sort of topic. Now that we're kind of coming to the end of our podcast, I'd like to talk to you guys about the NHS and the British system and ask uh, for your opinions in regards to that. Because the United Kingdom has a beverage model of healthcare in which essentially a healthcare is paid for by taxes. A, most hospitals are uh, publicly owned, but some are not. And most doctors are also government uh, employees, but uh, not all of them are. The rest of them well, uh, they charge the government for their services, but it is essentially the government who provides healthcare for individuals. And because of this, they're able to determine costs and what services are provided. So, so far in your experience, how has uh, the NHS uh, been for you, for you guys? Uh, do you guys have any criticisms? How do you feel about this model? Well, personally, I haven't had a great time with the NHS. I only have one real example, but um, at the start of, well, closer to the start of term, uh, I was, you know, feeling pretty sick, just like a bad cold. And I went to the doctor and the NHS doctor and they're like, you know, it's fine. Just, you know, rest. So I took their advice. I rested and I still had it for about a week later. And then I started getting pain in like my forehead and like, you know, in my head and I was still really sick. So I went to the NHS doctor again and I was like, oh, you know, it hasn't gotten better. You told me to come back. And both of these times I'm waiting like two, three hours. Right. And the doctor's like, oh, you know, rest, rest some more. And I'm like, you know, my head hurts a lot. And she's like, you know, rest more. So I rest more. And then I, after like five days after that, it gets like really bad where I like I cannot put my head down on my pillow to like sleep because it's so painful. So at like nine in the evening, I, I look up like, you know, a private clinic and I go to a private clinic like 20 minutes away from me. And... Uh, I see the doctor there. I wait maybe five minutes at the very most. I pay, I think it was 50 pounds. And the doctor tells me that he asked me why I didn't see a doctor earlier. And I told him I did. I saw a doctor twice. And he said he, like, he was really shocked because he, what he told me is that I had um, like sinusitis, which is like, I 
don't know what it is exactly, but something in your like sinuses that isn't very uncommon, and you just need like same um, prescription antibiotics to get rid of it. But he said that he was, you know, really surprised because this is something that can really uh, easily be like seen after a medical, you know, examination. And uh, he told me that it was really good that I, you know, went in because if I had, you know, waited and tried to like rough it out, it could like result in like long-term consequences. So that's my, so I haven't been back to the NHS since, but you know, that's my personal experience. I don't know. I haven't had any experiences with the NHS apart from just registering. So I, I can't say the same as Abraham said. So I, I, I don't think I'd be in a good position to say, apart from the fact that the outcome seemed pretty good. The UK has one of the best health expe- life expectancies in the world. So Maybe in hindsight, we could have got someone with coronavirus in the NHS <laughs> system currently on to discuss their experience. <laughs> yeah. But um, I think that could have been problematic. I have to say that I have some experience with the NHS and what I value from it is the fact that I paid, as an international student, I paid a health surcharge to be able to uh, utilize the NHS. But uh, all of the services that have been provided for me so far have been free. Not free in the sense that I did pay the health surcharge, but I haven't had any additional expenses, which is something I do value. Though I, I do recognize that perhaps the service could be uh, improved in, in, in certain circumstances. How have your wait times been, Malik? I have to say that I have had considerable wait time. However, the outcome was not as bad as Abraham's, as my problem was was solved. And uh, I, I did not have to pay any any additional surcharges. I, I got a colirium uh, w- without any without any additional costs. So I, I do believe that there's some benefits to the system. And as Harris has mentioned, it is one of the best in the world. Very cool. So it seems like the NHS's biggest advantage is this you know, um, the fact that it's free, the fact, basically. well, I mean, the fact it's not free, but like, I mean, yeah, it, it doesn't involve additional expenses. Yes. Yeah. That's a better way of putting it. I think no co-payments, no co-payments. Yeah. So it's interesting where the NHS seems to have, you know, some good outcomes and the people who are using the NHS, the thing they like most about it is that there is no co-payments, but you know, just previously we were discussing how, systems with co-payments actually may result in better outcomes. So we see this distinction, which is, you know, I think pretty interesting. Yeah, any any final thoughts or? I think in general, a system that involves co-payment, but a lot of government intervention is probably the best way to go because the results show. But I don't think that it's easy for us to implement it in a lot of Western liberal democracies because the way Singapore works is that you have to, you're, you're forced to, a certain sum, right? And I don't think that would sit well with American ideals of freedom and liberty. And Harish, healthcare right or privilege? Final answer. Qualified right. Uh, since I mentioned in the beginning that I agree with Harish, I'd also have to say it's a qualified right. I do agree that the government has to have some intervention in the healthcare system. You can't leave it all to the free market or else there will be detrimental effects to the most vulnerable individuals in society. And I would be against that. So I do believe that it is a qualified right. And for me, I, I think, you know, some imaginary free market system would be pretty nice um and in terms of rights you know i i don't think it's a right but please somebody convince me otherwise so i don't have to take this difficult ruthless stance on air so um you can dm us on instagram with your with your own arguments and maybe you'll convince um, abe finally or convince harish and malik of Uh, of the opposite yeah so I i think let's leave things there it was a good discussion thank you malik thank you Thank you, Harish. Thanks. A couple notes before we go. 
If you're a fan of the show or just enjoyed today's episode, leave us a rating or review in the podcast store or tell a friend about us. To stay up to date, make sure to subscribe to our show. You can reach out to us on Twitter at pseudointpod, follow us on Instagram at pseudointellectualspod, or like our page on Facebook at pseudointellectualspod. Thank you for listening, and you'll hear from us again soon.